wondered how taboo, shame, and lack of good sexual education have stripped away elements of pleasure in childbirth and parenting that are essential to loving, intimate relationships? Join me for another episode of Orgasmic Birth Podcast, Pleasure in Pregnancy, Birth, and Parenting, as we break down and heal barriers and open the door to more love and intimacy in birth and life. both the risks and benefits of epidurals as well as all your choices for comfort. I'm always surprised by how many people don't have all the information they need to make informed choices for their pain relief and comfort in labor and birth. In my doula workshops and childbirth classes, epidurals are the and the constant offering of them in hospitals with the lack of more options are always a hot topic. Today, I am really honored that my guest is Hensi Goer, and she's here to provide us with insights, science, and information that you need to help you make the best decisions about comfort for you and your baby. Hi, I'm Deborah Pascali Bonaro, founder and director of Orgasmic Birth and host of the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. So where do I begin? There is truly so much to share with you about Hensi. First of all, she's a friend and a colleague. She started out as a Lamaze teacher and doula. Hensi's life work soon became analyzing and synthesizing the obstetric research in order to give pregnant women and birth professionals access to what constitutes optimal care in childbirth. She's the author of three books, Optimal Care in Childbirth, The Case for a Physiologic Approach with co-author midwife Amy Romano, The Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth and Obstetric Myth versus Research Realities. And Hensi, your books have been on my bookshelves and part of my class throughout all my years as a teacher and doula. In addition, she's written numerous blog posts and articles and given lectures around the world. In recognition of her work, she has received, among others, the American College of Nurse Midwives Best Book of the Year Award, Lamaze International's President's Award, Dona International's Klaus and Kennel Research Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award from Bold Atlanta, and the Media Award from the American Association of Birth Centers. The Take Charge of Your Birth series, short books on single topics to help women make informed choices and obtain optimal care for themselves and their babies is a continuation of her work. Hensi's newest book, Labor Pain, What's Your Best Strategy? I have to say, I just had the opportunity to read it. I think it's something everyone should read, both birth pros and pregnant people. So it is such an honor to have you join us today, Hensi. Welcome. I'm just thrilled to be here. And it's it's really wonderful to get back together again with you because we go back Decades. Yes. <laughs> Don't tell them how far, right? We keep it away. No, no. But... <laughs> my lips are sealed. <laughs> but 
Your work has had an impact for so many of us. It's really given us the tools as doulas and educators to really understand as you analyze the research for us, right? We call you the birth guru, giving us that (laughs) data, but really helping parents as well. And, you know, I've always been curious, like, how did you do that? What's your story that started you on this path? Okay, well... We need to get into the Wayback Machine and go back to the birth of my first child, my son, back in 1974. And that was a perfectly uneventful vaginal birth to a healthy baby. And yet the experience left me just, I was depressed. I was, I was very unhappy. I felt unfortunately, unconnected from my son, which is something that lasted literally for months. And I thought it was like, well, what happened must have been for the best. So here were some of the things that were part of that birth. The first thing was that I had taken Lamaze classes and they were working really well for me. And I was talked into having uh, an opioid because... I didn't feel the need for it. And it actually didn't work very well for me. It just made me very dizzy and sleepy. And then I felt like I couldn't cope with contractions. And then I got to pushing and I was trying to push flat on my back and not get anywhere. And I kept saying, if I could just, if I could just get up a little further and nobody did anything about that. And eventually I was talked into having what's called a caudal block, which is the dumbest anesthesia going because all it, it stops the pain, and it, but it also sort of stops the pushing. So then I was taken into the delivery room and had a forceps delivery and a large episiotomy. And I really wanted to be with my son, but after just holding him for a few minutes, he was taken away for a mandatory 12 hours for observation. And because he was born at night, they didn't bring him to me until the morning, at which point I I was hurting. I was exhausted. I I, I just couldn't work up any emotion for him other than I thought he was cute. So I emerged from that birth feeling like I was very depressed. And I thought it was all my fault. I mean, I thought was, oh, that's just me. You know, I, I, I can't, I can't cope with these things until I was pregnant with the second child and wanted and started looking into, we were moving to California at that point and started thinking about what I wanted and didn't want for this birth. And that's when I discovered that all of the things that had been done to me hadn't been necessary in my case. It was just sort of part of their routines. So when I was pregnant for the second time and I started looking into things, I found out that all of those those practices and policies had not been necessary in my case, and they'd caused me a great deal of both emotional and physical pain. And so we were moving to California, and I went looking for and found a progressive obstetrician, and there was a new thing at Stanford where you didn't have to go to the delivery room for your baby. You could have your baby in the same room. And I found I had someone who I now had a care provider who listened to me, who who took 
what I had to say seriously in terms of making shared decisions. And it turned out, yep, I had another uneventful labor and a healthy baby and a profoundly different experience. So it was actually the more difficult labor because she was posterior. That means instead of facing my back, which is the favorable position for getting through the pelvis, she was facing my belly, which can hold babies up and sometimes causes very painful back pain, uh, which it did. However, in this case, when I got to pushing and it became very painful and I said, oh, I, I don't think I can do this, everybody around me said, yes, you can, you can do this, you're almost there. So they encouraged me instead of, instead of you know, trying to give me drugs. And they also, the, um, the, the doctor got me onto my hands and knees, which can help turn babies who are in that position. And then he, he actually reached his hand in and was very gently kind of bringing her head around as I pushed, which worked beautifully. And then once he got her around, she was born within, I, you know, I was turned on my back and, and she was born in the next few contractions. And, and once her head came out, he said, you want your baby? Pull it up. We didn't know it was a girl at this point. And I reached down and I pulled up my baby onto my chest, who promptly pushed herself up on her arms and looked me in the face. And it was like a double exposure photograph with my first birth kind of instinctively reaching for my son, being restrained by the cuffs on the delivery table. And I remember hearing don't touch, this is a sterile field, compared with my birthing my own baby onto my chest. And then she was with us for the next couple of hours, except, or with my husband, except for a very brief exam. And I came out of that birth feeling on top of the world. It changed how I thought of myself forever. I remember um, after we had gotten home, I was taking a, a shower and, you know, washing. And for the first time in my life, I loved my body. You know, women always hate something about their bodies. Their boobs right. are too small or their tush is too, or whatever it might be. And I was like, it, it just changed. I don't think I would be doing what I am today because it taught me that I could do hard things. So when I came out of that birth, I was I wanted to t I wanted to get the word out there that how you experience the birth is not trivial. It determines how you feel about yourself and your baby and your partner. And so I got involved with the birthplace, which was the women's resource center that was a birth center that was getting started, and they were getting they were they were involved in a freestanding birth center, which is where I we met and I became a Lamaze teacher and I started working as a doula at that center and as a doula with my clients. And at that point, doula was not an official thing yet. So, I mean, the, the, the very earliest research had been done, but there was no Dona International or some of the organizations that have sprung up since. And as I started teaching and going to births, I realized that there was a gap between what I knew to be the best practices and what women were actually, uh, and people capable of becoming pregnant were actually experiencing. And because I had like, I, I'd, have, I'd gotten a degree in biology, 
and I liked writing, I got involved in starting to do the research. That was what the, and, and wanting to bring that research, people who engaged with, with pregnant people, doulas, educators, and also pregnant women and people capable of becoming pregnant themselves. And in the end, I let go of being a Lamaze teacher and a doula. I mean, I was pretty good at it. I mean, I, I wasn't terrible, but it, I think there are a lot of educators and doulas out there, but there weren't a lot of people around who were interested in really analyzing the research and sort of bringing that to other people. But my push has always been wanting to let pregnant women know that the decisions they made were extremely important and that they weren't necessarily getting all the information they needed to make informed decisions. And that at least if they were planning hospital births, they were within a system in which the system itself could be problematic for their agency. And three books later, I mean, I, I, I decided that to, to go for that niche because it would enable me to reach more people. Yeah. Thank you so much, Hensi. You know, I think I knew some of your story from years ago, but hearing it again today, and I'm sure for those listening, it really touched, you know, how your first birth really created that disconnect and how your second birth was so different, right? And so connecting and powerful for you in so many ways. And, you know, I'm so glad you do what you do because I'm sure you're here too. So many people have stories of their first birth creating more challenge or for some even trauma. And then the second time reaching for that information. So I know by you putting all these books out, it's helping people the first time have the information that they need. And in your newest book, you do such a great job. And I want to just start with like people that are looking, going, how can I have a positive birth the first time so I don't have to go on that journey? Can you share a bit, like, how can they start to create a positive experience? Before we do that, I would like to talk about my third and last birth, specifically oh, yes. for this audience, because the first two births are about my story and how I ended up doing what I'm doing. My third birth, all right, so the second birth was a very empowering birth, but I went through it in, in fear. And so while it was a positive experience, I felt emotionally overwhelmed. I was, you know, I was, I felt like I was on a bobsled ride and it was taking these turns and I was whooshing down the hill and I didn't know if I was going to crash. It was a very frightening experience. When I got to the third birth, I have an idea that every labor, if you're open to it, will teach you something about yourself. Um, and the second one had taught me how strong I could be. The third one I went into with a with an attitude of, because I'm a very controlling person, and that was what had created the fear, with what happens if I let go? And it was an extraordinary experience in the sense of it was spiritually transformational because I went through that birth. I had a bunch of people there. I think there were nine people. There was my husband, of course. There were my, the, the, the last baby, my older 
the, their older brother and sister were 10 and 7. Okay, so there was a big gap. So my children were there. The babysitter to look after the children and meet their needs was there. My dear friend, who was a Bradley teacher, by the way, had her and her three month old baby in a backpack was taking photographs. My very dear friend, may her memory be a blessing. Harriet Palmer, who was a nurse midwife who did home births, was there as my as a friend. The, the doctor, the family practitioner hung out with us because he was also a friend. So I had this crowd and I was the queen. I stomped around. I yelled. I, I mean, I just felt like I was the goddess being served and it was ecstatic. Now, I totally get that not every woman, their birth, you know, they, they, they might not be where their heads are or the labor isn't or there's a lot of things. But I do remember when you first started talking about orgasmic birth, sitting in a, at a big conference, and you said, how many of you women have, have, have experienced an orgasm during birth? And a, a pretty good sprinkling of hands went up, which was exciting. And then you said, and how many of you have had, not, you know, not necessarily an orgasm, but an ecstatic experience? And about 20% of us went, hands went up and mine was one of them. So that also infuses what I do. I wanted to write a book that made no assumptions about what women wanted. And I wanted to be very careful because I think there's a great polarity here. Either, either you're sort of in the mainstream and you're just crazy. Why wouldn't you have an epidural? I mean, birth, you know, labor is like, in this modern day and age, why would you want to suffer with the pain? Or on the other end, it's like, oh, yes, there are rushes. They're not painful if you look at them correctly. And I think those are equally problematic. So I wanted to find the sweet spot where I could really help women make the choices that were right for them. But I also have places in the book I want to let women know that there is this possibility if they're interested in it, because they're so unlikely to hear about it in, main, in the mainstream information they're going to be hearing about birth. So I'm very clear in the book when I'm talking about that as my personal experience and, and not making any assumptions about what might be right for somebody else. But just like, if you're interested, here's a thread to follow. Thank you, Hensi. And so wonderful to hear. As you said, you learned something. Each of your birth journeys was so powerful in its own ways. And of course, coming to that ecstatic birth. And I remember that moment of seeing your hand go up in that audience. You reminded me of this time and I'm filled with real joy with that as well. But I really appreciate how you hold the space that it's a unique journey. Look at three different journeys for you, three different experiences. And for everyone listening and preparing for birth, their journey will be different too. So back to that question, when people are like, how can they start preparing for a positive experience? Well, I think I captured that in the subtitle to the book which is get the data, make a plan, take charge of your birth. So let me kind of break down each one of those. The first of them is get the data, which means you need to have non-judgmental, balanced information about the pros and cons of all your options. And unfortunately, that is more difficult to get 
than you think it's going to be, because this is a controversial issue and everybody's got an opinion, uh, including your, your care providers. So what I tried to provide in the book is a balanced picture now, which isn't to say that, yeah, you know, I've got an opinion too. There is no such thing as neutrality, but what you can get is transparency. So what I have done, because I'm the research maven, is tell you what backs up the information I'm giving you and give you, if you want it and you want to dive into it, the, the literal, the percentages, the details of the pros and cons of all your options. So, um, which I might as well run them off here, are in addition to epidurals, there's something called a combined spinal epidural, which is a sort of little different thing that's in the same family. There's opioids, there's nitrous oxide, laughing gas, and finally, there's what I call do-it-yourself strategies, which is a whole range of, of comfort measures and mental strategies, and, and there's a whole bunch of those, so that you know the pros and cons of all your options. And then I think there's another piece. So now you've got the data, and you're in a position to say, and by the way, there's a table in the back of the book that does a side-by-side -side comparison of everything all in one place. But so once you have the data, then you can say, yeah, I'm still making an epidural plan A. Or you could say, hmm, I would like to give this a try to see if I can avoid an epidural because there are some advantages to doing that. And then I think, then the, the, the last chapter is like, all right, so you're, how do you implement your plan? So you've got your plan, but then there are sort of like, I can give you tips on how to plan on having an epidural in ways that will minimize the chance of experiencing one of its adverse effects or its disadvantages. And if you're planning on avoiding an epidural and you're, you're making an epidural plan B, then I can give you tips and hints on how to set things up so that you have the best chance of of avoiding an epidural. And I have to say that in, if you're planning a hospital birth, that's a very important section of the book because the system does not always make that easy. And then there's, uh, for people who are, are whose plan is, uh, I think this is a, a very important point I want to make. For people whose plan is to avoid an epidural, I recommend that you make that in an intention rather than a goal. A goal is about the path. Here's where I want to get to. A goal is about the result. A goal implies success or failure about whether you achieve that goal. An intention is the direction that you want to go, not so much where you end up. But knowing what you want enables you to modify. So, okay. A lot, there's a fair number of people in the mainstream system who are averse to birth plans. And usually the reason they're adverse to it is that they think of it like a marketing list. So if you don't get what you want, then you're set up to feel bad about yourself. So the best thing to do is to just go with the flow. I say, that's a very limited idea of what a plan can be. This is more like 
planning a vacation or planning your career, it's really helpful to know both from the head point of view, uh, from the heart point of view, what are your values? What's important to you? And also from the head point of view, what's practical given your particular circumstances? But if you know that, then you're in a much better position to adjust and adapt and to set the situation up to support where you want to go. Which brings me to the last item, which is take charge of your birth. Note, I'm not going to say control because you can't control the birth. You can't control anything in life, but you can take charge because it turns, you can have agency. And that's really what I'm after as the bottom line in the sense that there's, and there's research to back this up, is that when pregnant people feel like the people around them are listening to them, they're full participants in the decision that was made, they have the ultimate decision-making capacity, they're respected, that is far more important than how easy or difficult the birth is. So that's what I want to get to. I want to help women take charge of their births. Beautifully said. I couldn't agree more, Hensi, and how important that is. And I like that you differentiated too, depending on what you want in the hospital. The hospital may have different ideas, right? And just, you know, having those intentions and that plan and being having ways to mm-hmm. navigate it will be so helpful. So can we start just with if plan A is an epidural and you know. That's a a good choice for someone that has really looked at all those benefits and risks and all the alternatives you already shared. What are a couple tips you might say for them to help that to be a positive? Well, the first thing I would say is to find a care provider whose intention, I'll, I'll, I'll bring back my own word, is vaginal birth. Because I do believe there are a fair number and they're not just obstetricians, although it's more likely to be one, who are indifferent to whether the, the labor ends in a cesarean or not. So you want someone, because what we know about epidurals, this is all very fuzzy, is there's a, there's a controversy over do epidurals increase the likelihood of cesarean or don't they? And what I got to in reading that research is that One of the reasons I think that that whether you have an epidural or not, you're likely to have a a, 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 there's a high cesarean rate, like like one in three. But that's my definition of high in this country is because even if you don't have an epidural, you're, you're very likely to have a cesarean. So I would come down and I discuss this in the book. I'd come down on Yes, epidurals can increase the cesarean rate, but I would also say that if you have a care provider who's going to manage the labor and your epidural, because they have in mind that that unless there's a medical complication of some of some kind or this baby just isn't going to come out, that it's preferable to have a vaginal birth. So I'd look for someone like that, and then you are more likely to have a spontaneous vaginal birth. Okay. The second tip I'd have is to have enough tricks and other ways of coping with labor in your bag to delay an epidural. Because 
there's some evidence that suggests that having an epidural very early, and, and again, the mainstream obstetrician will say, nope, we've disproved that. And I will go into what the research says, pro and con, and why I think that's a flawed argument. But nonetheless, there is, I, I think you are better off if you can stay mobile and up and around until you're in active labor. And even if it doesn't affect cesareans, here's something it does affect. There is a complication of epidurals that you run a, you run a fever. It's a fever-associated epidural. It's not an infectious fever. However, once you're running a fever, that raises concern. And fevers can be bad for babies in utero, even if, you know, even if it's not the start of an infectious process. By, and running a fever is directly correlated to how long you have an epidural. So if you can delay it and use other things, and by the way, nitrous oxide is a, is a good one for that, as well as the DIY strategies, you might avoid that epidural fever problem and also stay mobile in the early part of labor, which can help bring the baby into a favorable position. So if you can delay an epidural, I would recommend that. Let me see. Uh, I think one thing that's important is I would decline, and this is again connected to finding the right care provider. One of the things that that a lot of obstetricians, and I imagine some midwives as well, have time limits on making progress. And provided that mother and baby are doing well, and some progress, some change is happening, I would decline, because you, you may not be in control of, of who you, ends up attending you in the labor, what with, you know, have, people on call or whatever, I would decline a cesarean or an instrumental birth that is based only on the amount of time, a preset time limit. So that's something else you can do. Let me see if anything else jumps into my head. Well, those are some basic ideas, and I know there are others in the book. Yes. Does that and answer your question? It does. That's really helpful because it's good information, and your book does go deeper because I think people that are considering an epidural really do need to look at the ways that they can optimize it to be that positive experience. Now, you also go in, and of course, you know I'm a big proponent on having those DIY, do-it-yourself techniques. I call it comfort and pleasure, right? That either you know will take you as far as you are comfortable going. And for some people, mm -hmm. that will take them all the way through labor. So if that's your kind of plan, Plan A, that you're really looking to do as much as you can to manage and find your own comfort. What would be some of your tips there for people, especially if they're in a hospital? Yeah, because my first tip would be is that if you're healthy and you are a good candidate for community birth in a birth center or in your home, uh, I would look into that because it kind of gets rid of the problem. Yeah. However, if you are planning a hospital birth, it's even more crucial to find a care provider who will support an unmedicated birth. The second thing is that you and your partner need to be on top of things. If you are planning on a hospital birth, it's important for you and your partner to be on top of things. So I strongly recommend that you take a childbirth preparation class that is intended to prepare you for having a birth without medications. And that may mean having to seek out the right class. I also strongly recommend that you hire a doula because, I mean, I think 
you should hire a doula even if you're planning on an epidural because you still need emotional support and tricks and tips of the trade and all of that. But if you're not planning on having uh, an epidural, a doula is especially valuable in giving you ideas and supporting you and supporting your partner and kind of helping you get through. No more are coming to mind in the moment, but the other thing that I strongly recommend is because you don't know how the birth is going to be for you, is that you have a plan for how to change your mind in labor. Uh, and I offer several ideas about that. Well, for one thing, you might, well, first of all, I would say don't make a decision in the middle of a contraction. The idea is, here is you want to end up with a decision that you're happy with in the long term. So, if you decide you want medication, one thing you can do is have a strategy that your team has like five contractions or half an hour or something to try and get you more comfortable. And then one of three things will happen. They'll, something will help. You'll get over the rough patch and into smoother waters. Or you'll still want your epidural, in which case now you get it. Another thing is that you can have a code word. And that will allow you to complain, whine, cry, curse, do whatever you need. And until you use the code word, you're good. Um, and the reason I suggest that is, is very often partners in particular can get very concerned by seeing someone they love in pain and, and they want to fix it and make it better. Okay. So this, in it, this creates that space where you can do whatever you need to do. And that's exactly what I did in my third labor. I think they heard me over in the hills in Stanford, but, <laughs> but it was great. <laughs> I even use some words I don't normally use. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so that you you can behave as you need to do. So important, right? I love that, Hensi, right? And then I would add one more thing. If you do make that decision, there's a fairly high probability that the anesthesiologist will bop into the room and say something that he or she thinks is helpful, like, well, we'll soon be seeing you smiling again, or I think natural childbirth makes about as much sense as natural dentistry, all of which, both of which I've heard actually when I was a doula. And the thing about that is that's got a stinger inside it, which is that the, the, the sub-message is, now, weren't you crazy to even try this? So, I mean, you may be in a position where you're just as you're feeling very good about your decision to change. Uh, your plan, but it's very possible that 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 stinger lands, and so I think it's important for your team to to be aware that perhaps what you're better needing is is empathy for the need to make the change in decision and reviewing how hard you worked and everything that you tried, so that to 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 be at peace with you don't. You only get to play the hand. You don't control what hands, what cards you get dealt. But I just kind of want to, kind of pull that stinger before somebody sticks it in. 
such a good point and so important. You've given so many great tips, whichever way people go. And I love having that option, but being prepared to navigate those options. I have to tell you, I love code words too, and Mm -hmm. teach them a lot in all my workshops and classes. But I have to just share this story. I think you'll like it. I was teaching it to the doulas of Austria. And I often say have two code words. So the first one can let someone know like, I'm coming to a point like I need more support. I'm reaching that kind of self-doubt, which can be normal in labor. And then the second one is, okay, like we haven't met the need. And I really, as our colleague Penny Simpkin says, if pain becomes suffering, no one should suffer in childbirth. And it's a brave decision to then say the second code word. So this doula I taught told her clients that and her clients code two code words were amazing grace and in that real hard part of labor she was on a birth ball rocking and as you said you just let those sound out to it just feels so good to release the energy and she was screaming amazing Amazing. And she never said grace because everyone stepped up their her support. And I think even the fact that you use more positive kind of affirmations brought her through the challenge. And as you said, I love how you said that to calmer waters. And so I've been having my clients do it now. And it's been very effective. And I like the amazing part. And when people say grace, as you said, we're really there to support them. And that is grace when you can make the best decisions for yourself. Can I tell a story in return about how important agency is? Yes, please. So I was asked to be a doula to a woman who was wanting a VBAC. And she told me about her first birth. And it was a very long labor and it wasn't progressing. And her the temperature was going up. Uh, and there were some then the heart rate was starting to get a little and she agreed to a cesarean now i'm sitting here with my you know like yeah that sounds like a, a good call but she felt devastated by that decision and was very negative about it so she wanted her v back and her obstetrician was saying you're a very tiny woman i think this is a 10 pound baby but yeah if you want a v back we'll do it So get to this labor, and she labored for quite a while, and um, there was no progress. I mean, I don't think she even got into active labor. And they came in and said, they handled it right. You know, like, definitely you can keep laboring, but we're just not seeing what we would want to see, and we do think this is a very big baby. And she agreed to this cesarean. But it was totally her choice. There was no pressure. And then the nurse did something that was absolutely wonderful. She said, you know, they kind of brought in the wheelchair, you know, like to to take her into the delivery room. The nurse said, would you like to walk into the delivery room? And she said, yes, I would. And she had her cesarean and it was a big baby. And she felt so good about that whole process because people... Even though the first one was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) And the second one was like, it was because it was fully her choice, no pressure. And because that nurse had done that one thing that said, you're in charge. It made all the difference in the world. 
beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing, Hensi, and for all your work, because that's what you're doing. Your book, and especially your newest book, I truly hope everybody listening will run out um, to get a copy, because that's what it's about. Having the knowledge is power, the information you need to make those decisions, and then to find the team that's going to honor and respect you and bless that nurse, you know, for the little gestures that are huge gestures and helping people have that autonomy and agency. So I know everybody's like, where do I find you, Hensi? Can you share where your website, Instagram, where, how do we get a hold of a copy of your book? Okay. Well, let's start with the book. The book is coming out on August 29th. It's actually, you can pre-order it right now if you're interested in an ebook. Uh, but the paperback will be out on August 29th. And hopefully the audiobook, which I have to say, is narrated by my daughter, who just happens to be a professional audiobook narrator. She's got over 200 books, including for big publishing houses that she's narrated for um, for authors. And now I'm added to her list. But anyway, the audiobook may not be available on the 29th. It, there may be a few days delay before it's available. And I'll add too that if you are interested in the audiobook, there'll be a link to a PDF that has the illustrations and the photos and some graphs. And it also has some of the text in the more from the more complicated that might be a little difficult to follow if you're listening on audio. So if you're interested in that experience, you can get an audiobook too. So 29th or shortly thereafter. And where As do we go? Amazon okay. for the book. As for me, you can come to my website at hensigoer.com and you can sign up there to, you can subscribe to my email list. I send out a roundup newsletter once a month of items that I think of our interest to birth professionals or pregnant people. I have an, <laughs> I've just started being on Instagram. This is like brave new waters for me. Uh, my Instagram is take charge of your birth and those, and I have a Facebook page, which is also take charge of your birth. Well, thank you. I hope everyone that's listening will connect with you in one or many of those places. And for everyone listening, we look forward to your feedback. Please rate us, leave a comment. We'd love to hear your nuggets that you're taking away. You can tag both Hensi and tag us at Orgasmic Birth on Instagram. Take charge of your birth and Orgasmic Birth and tell us what you took away from this conversation. Thank you so much, Hensi. Thank you, Deborah. It was just wonderful being with you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. You're welcome. And look forward to everyone joining us for our next episode of the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about pleasure in birth parenting and birth work, visit orgasmicbirth.com forward slash more for my free gifts. And please leave a review about your experience. Reviews help us to reach more people and please subscribe. Mm-hmm.